This is David Suisa in the Jewish Journal Studios. Today I'm honored to have with us, straight from Israel, author and philosopher, Dr. Mika Goodman. Welcome, Mika. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. You and I met a couple of years ago at the Mamila Hotel, and I remember you were so excited about this new book. And you told me about the book, and I'm thinking, why is he so excited about this book? So here we are two years later. It's been the best seller in Israel for the past year, and it's called Catch 67. I want to talk to you more about it. Can you say a few words on how you came to write this book? Well, I think today I understand the book in a very different way than I did when I wrote it. So I thought this book is not a book about the Israeli-Arab conflict. It's not a book about, about the conflict. It's a book about the Israeli conversation about the conflict. And I wanted to share with Israelis my understanding of Israelis and to analyze the internal Israeli conversation because I believe that if we understand the conversation, we can also cure the conversation. And this is, well, this is my assumption. There's an American philosopher, John Dewey, that said once that we think, of oh, this is how I understand Dewey, we think that being a critical thinker is reading a theory and figuring out what's wrong with it listening to a thought or to a lecture and figuring out where the lecture or where the theory, where did it go wrong? And he says, maybe the more deeper critical thinking is reading a book, listening to a theory, listening to a thought, listening to an idea and asking ourselves, where did he get it right? Where did she get it right? And that might be much more productive intellectually. And after we ask, where, what's the power of a theory or an idea? Then we can ask, okay, where are the weaknesses? Where did it get wrong? So what I did, David, I tried to ask, I tried to read and understand what are the great ideas of the Israeli right? And what are the great ideas and arguments of the Israeli left? And I ask, what did they get right? What is the power of the Israeli right? What is the depth and the brilliance of the Israeli left? And I asked these questions. And my assumption, David, was that no one got everything right. Everyone got something right. I tried to bring it out and let Israelis see the strength, the brilliance, and the power of all the arguments that are in the battle of ideas taking place in Israel. What I found especially fascinating, though, was although you're a renowned philosopher, you had this incredible respect for hard reality. And I remember when I, because I wrote about the book, uh, and the thing that, that shook me up the most was this sense of incredible reality. For example, you were saying that uh, the Palestinians, well, they're incapable of recognizing A, B, or C, for example, recognizing the fact that they should lose their claim, their right of return. It's too much to ask of them. So knowing that, what can we realistically expect? This is the, the, the part of the book that I was so fascinated with, was this sense of reality, that I'm not going to look for a solution. I'm going to look for reality. And what can I do with reality? And for a philosopher to think like that, I mean, because yeah. I, I, I'm wondering, how can a philosophical book become a bestseller? I'll tell you, because philosophy is to think about thinking. Okay. So I'm offering the following observation. How do we think about politics? Let's think about how we think about politics. I want to offer you an example. I want, I want to offer you an example. So um, how do we think about religion? Okay. 
So think about how Orthodox European Jews, Orthodox Ashkenazi Jews, how they think about religion. So let's say I decide I'm going to fast 25 hours in Yom Kippur from evening to evening. And somewhere at one o'clock in the afternoon, I get thirsty, I check around, no one's looking, I drink a bottle of water. I go back to Musaf, to Shul, and I finish the prayer. That's one person. Another person decides I'm not fasting at all. Eats five meals, yeah, has a good day, drinks a cold beer in the afternoon. They had a different day psychologically, halachically, according to Jewish law, they had the same day. They both didn't fast. You see, David, because in religious thinking, either you fast or you don't fast, because religion loves dichotomies. Either it's holy or it's profane. Either it's pure or impure. Now let's think about music if I, or art. If I tell you that there's this great song of uh, Simon and Garfunkel that I don't find inspiring, you don't think that I think that's a disgusting song. Maybe it's a great song, just not inspiring. Maybe it's not bad. Maybe it's okay. What I'm trying to say is when we think about religion, we think in dichotomies. When we think about art, we think in degrees. Now let's ask the third question. How do we think about politics? Do we think about politics like we think about religion or like we think about art? So your book is taking politics and thinking about it like art. Exactly. I think we're making a very big mistake when we think about politics like we think about religion. When we, when we think about politics like we think about religion, we said either we end the occupation or not end. We bring peace or no peace. End conflict or maintain the conflict. Well, How I'm, about shrinking the size of the conflicts? You know, I'm glad you brought that up. This is exactly what I was going to ask you next because the, the conversation in America is so full of dichotomies. So we have demonstrators that say, end the occupation. And that's black and white. That's almost a religious way of thinking. There's no artfulness to it is exactly. what I'm hearing. So tell our listeners how you brought this artfulness to such a, a harsh, heart-wrenching, complicated conflict. So I think Israel, I, what I found in Israel, Israelis are willing to do a paradigm shift, to think about this like art and not like religion, to ask not how to end occupation, but how to shrink the amount of occupation, not, not to ask how to bring peace. The notion of bringing peace assumes a dichotomy. There is no peace in the world. One day there'll be, there'll be peace. There is peace in the world, just not enough. How about more peace? Instead of bringing peace, how about more, increase the amount of peace? Instead of um, ending the conflict, shrinking the conflict. Let's think about this like music, not like religion. And, um, and when we think about it that way, it's interesting. There are many ideas that enable us to shrink the conflict without ending it. But as, lo but, but, but as long as we think about this like religion, those ideas can't even emerge because are you one state or two state solution? Are you, um, are you going to end the occupation or manage the conflict? So we have, we're, we're stuck in dichotomies, which are all David false dichotomies. So we in order to think creatively about the conflict, we have to do a paradigm shift Think about politics like we think about music, not like how we think about religion. And that makes room for new ideas. 
Now, you've taken this idea on the road because it's a big hit in, uh, in Israel, and you've talked to the Army and the IDF. How has that gone? I mean, you got this sort of very, I don't know if romantic is the right word for it, but it's a lyrical, unusual way of looking at something that is, is very uh, hard and political. What's been the reaction? So interesting. Um, so because in the book I give, I present the, the left in the, in the best light I can, and there, I give the best argument I can to the right, and I try to see the best in both sides, so people on the right say, well, it's really a left-wing book. And people on the left were saying it's a really right-wing book. Because how can you take, like people on the right were telling me, how can you take the left so seriously? You, only a left, a, a closet left-winger can take the left so seriously. And people on the left were saying exactly the same thing. Like Ehud Barak, which criticized the book. I saw, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> he, he really went after you he in the went New York after Times. Me. He went after me. And he went after me because he says, um, I, I take the security argument of the right very seriously. And he says, how can you take the security argument seriously if you're not right-wing, which I think is, it was a, the exact same thing. I was attacked by the right. How can you take the demographic argument of the left so seriously? You must be a leftist. And I, I think, think that being attacked from both sides about the content of the book proves the content of the book. That what I'm trying to argue is that we have a sick conversation. That instead of listening to each other, we're labeling each other. And people labeling my book proves one of the points of the book, that we have to have an open conversation where we truly listen to each other and not label each other. Listen, David, Israel, Israelis are very creative. Israel is a startup nation. Israelis come up with great ideas. And uh, I was now in Israel and I met a group from India that came to Israel and they didn't come to visit the Kotel or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They came to visit Mobilai and Intel. We have a whole new world of tourism coming to Israel. Come, not coming to Israel the past, but coming to visit the future, coming to visit high tech, and all trying to figure out what is the secret sauce of Israeli creativity. And I thought about it, David. So many people come to Israel to visit technological creativity. No one comes to visit political creativity. There is no political creativity in Israel. And how is it that a nation is so creative technologically is so not creative politically. Do you think it's connected to fear? I think it's connected to the fact, if you go to any high-tech company, you'll realize that, that the, you visit these small startups all over Israel, you'll see that there's a very vibrant, open conversation. You'll see that people are not afraid to speak to each other. Mm -hmm. And it's an open conversation. And when, I, when people, when we do this, when people exchange ideas, so new ideas are born and they get creative, the political conversation, on the other hand, is a dysfunctional conversation. People don't, ex people don't listen with curiosity to each other. They're just waiting to label you. And so I think the fact that the political conversation is dysfunctional, it creates you know, lack of political creativity, and political creativity is what we need. So I think curing the political conversation yeah, is what we need in order to generate political creativity. Well, it seems that uh, we need it now more than ever because in America, the political conversation has gotten yeah. more and more crass and crude and, yeah. and almost hysterical and divisive. It gets to a point where people don't say, I disagree with you. They say, I reject you. 
and and I I think this is what the, you know the the conflict, the the conflict with the Palestinians has been at the forefront of this uh, dysfunctional conversation, and I think sometimes the mistake we make is we become too polite, and it never gets us to a point of creativity. So for those of us who are not engaging in in harsh conversations, we sometimes we just get too polite and we just tolerate. And we accept and we say, okay, so we, let's agree to disagree. But it doesn't get us to that music, to that artfulness that you're talking about, correct? Yeah. So it's not as easy as just listening, right? No, it's about, see, anxiety and curiosity are a reaction to the same thing, to otherness. Let's say you hear a view you're not used to hearing, an opinion you're not used to dealing with. So you could react to that with anxiety. Because it's, it's terrifying to hear someone that is so different. You can also react with curiosity. You react with anxiety because it's different. You can react with curiosity because it's different. I think the secret of, of, of saving our conversation is not canceling otherness. It's not reacting differently to otherness. That's curiosity. Curi right. Yeah, so, <laughs> someone once told me that, uh, you know, in the Jewish world... Uh, I think it was Yossi, my friend, you know, he said, we have this, this revelatory gene. Like we think everything from Sinai from 3,300 years ago, we got the revelation from God. And since then on, everything we think or say is like a revelation, like we're coming down, like, we're, you know, from Mount Sinai with the tablets. And then the other thing I heard that sort of helps explain this, this uh, phenomenon that we're talking about is this idea of life and death. Right. Like when a Jew talks about an issue, especially the conflict, especially if you live in Israel, yeah. there's a sense of life and death. And if I think that this is a life and death issue, then curiosity is a luxury I can't afford. So I think you're right. The Bible, the Bible creates a sense that everything is dramatic. But let's choose a different book as a paradigm. The Talmud, not the Bible. Now, the Talmud is a unique book in the following sense. It's a book with authority. It's almost a sacred book. But let's say the Roman law, the Roman law, those are books that canonized the law. The Talmud canonized the disagreement about the law. You see, you want to know what the law is? You, you can't open the Talmud and figure out the law because what you will see is a disagreement about the law. And that's very interesting and weird to canonize, not the result of the discussion, but the discussion. Like when my girls say to me, Daddy, when do we, when, when do we go to sleep tonight? I say eight. Then my wife will say nine. Usually we the other way around. She'll say eight and I'll say nine. And they'll notice that there's a disagreement. What would they really hear? If mommy says eight, daddy says nine, what does that mean? That means there's no real bedtime. Because when there is a disagreement, authority starts to collapse. The paradox of the Talmud is that this is a book with authority, that the authority is a disagreement that undermines authority. So this is what Hillel says, this is what Shammai says, this is what Rabbi Akiva says, this is what Rabbi Ishmael says. So we are living, we are inheritors of a tradition that made disagreement something that has value. And now we don't know how to disagree. That is, I think of, so we might be inheritors of the prophetic ultra dramatic culture where everything is life and death, but maybe we're not inheriting the Talmudic culture. And I want to tell you one more thing about the Talmudic culture, if this is interesting. 
that in the end there is halacha, right? And then the rabbis come and they say, okay, you live according to Hillel, not Shammai. You live according to Rabbah and not Abaye. But every time you study the Talmud, you study opinions that you're not, you're not allowed to live by. And when you study those opinions, David, you are performing the mitzvah, the commandment of studying Torah. Meaning we are commanded to learn opinions that we're not allowed to live by. That is curiosity. Can you imagine that if I'm conservative, I am commanded to study, to study liberal worldviews? Or if I'm liberal, if I'm commanded to study conservative worldviews, Talmud is about, it's not pluralism, it's curiosity. Where I study, I'm supposed to study ideas I'm not allowed to live by. That is the Talmudic culture. That is what we need, David. That is what we need. It's, it's, it's ironic because when you think of the Talmud, you think of this extremely rational form of, of dialogue. And yet the irony is that from this rational you know, dialogue, you can get to a point of artfulness and creativity, mm-hmm. which is what uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're calling for. I want to go back to your book, Catch 67, because I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind on how a country that has been so hardened by reality, that has seen so many peace offers be rejected, that saw that when Israel evacuated Gaza, it got, you know, rewarded by 20,000 rockets. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it has every reason to be cynical that any kind of agreement, whether it's a little bit of peace or a lot of peace, could have uh, any hope. But I'm struck by the fact that they've taken to your book despite a sense of moving on because the sense we've got is they've moved on from the conflict. They realize that there's no hope at this point. Maybe things will change later on, but that's the sense we get. So what is it that, what nerve did you tap into? Because I can tell you from going to Israel twice a year and speaking to Israelis and looking at the polls, there's a sense that uh, there's no deal to be had. So how can a book on a non-issue really right now strike a nerve? Okay. Well, let me give you in a nutshell one of the arguments of my book. Okay. 70% of Israelis think that if we stay in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, we are threatening our national Jewish majority. If we leave the West Bank, we're threatening our national security. What does that mean, David? Checkmate. (laughs) It's a a serious checkmate, right? So they feel that if we stay in the West Bank, we probably won't be able to define ourselves as a Jewish state. If we leave... Maybe won't be able to protect ourselves. So what do you do? Now, this double recognition hit about 70% of the Israelis. So what they do? They started speaking about other issues. Social justice, prices of cottage cheese, prices of real estate. 2011 was a turning point in Israel. I remember you came to Israel to see the rallies of 2011. And that was a moment, David. I remember you wrote about it, right? You're walking in Dizengolf, you're <laughs> saying, something's happening here. Now, tell you what was happening. For about, for, for about 40 years, you'd ask an Israeli, listen, why is there such great social gaps in Israel? He would say, or she would say, you're right, we should take care of this. We'll take care of this. Once we take care of the conflict, we'll deal with that. Uh, Why is it that Orthodox rabbis control Judaism in Israel? You're right. We'll take care of it after we solve the conflict. 
Why doesn't Israel have a constitution? You're right. We'll take care of it after we solve the conflict. So as a result, all the issues were supposed to get resolved. First, we solve the conflict, and then we deal with other issues. Moshe Halbata once pointed out that the, like, the conflict holds all the other issues as hostages. The irony of the summer 2011 when Israelis and hundreds of thousands started rallying about social justice and other issues are not conflict for the first time in 40 years. The irony is that we thought we'll deal with other issues after we solve the conflict. I think Israelis started to deal with other issues when they realized that they can't solve the conflict. That was the irony. This is a, a shift. So that's very, I think that's good. That's good. It's healthy Israel having a conversation that's populated by more issues than just the conflict. The problem is that the majority of Israelis, the very moderate worldviews, they just stop talking about the conflict. They're confused. You know, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. So let's speak about other issues. And because the center neglected the political, the conversation, so only extremists are participating in the conversation, and that, David, is distorting the conversation. In Cat 67, I'm trying to invite the center back into the conversation. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say there is categories, there is a way of thinking that enables the center, which is confused, to come back into the conversation. And I think what was important for the center, which is 70% of the Israelis, and they don't vote for centrist parties, but they have centrist worldviews, is that my, 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 I, I try to articulate their voice. I try to give them language to express themselves. So what I'm trying to do, we need the center back in the conversation. It's an important conversation. We can't neglect it. We can't leave this conversation to extremists only. We need moderates in this conversation. I'm not sure if you can answer my next question, but it seems to me that this might have repercussions in terms of political parties. Because if the book is so popular, it's going to create almost a need, a desire to see this kind of radical centrism yeah. be represented in the government. Because at the end of the day, there's things get translated into policies. Right? So I really hope that, um, you know, politicians, politicians are very, have great radars for what's popular and what's not popular. That's what they do. That's their job, right? That's, they have great radars. And I hope that um, and I have reason to believe that um, politicians in the pragmatic left, the pragmatic the right, and the political center, like the, all the brands of like the, the center, um, will realize that, see, that they have to change the way they think about politics. In the following sense, today being center means I'm indifferent to the conflict. And I'm speaking about other issues. Mm. I think to be center needs to, needs to mean I'm not indifferent about the conflict, I'm moderate about the conflict. And I hope that the center will do that paradigm shift. Instead of indifference towards the Palestinian issue, moderation regarding the Palestinian issue. We need that centrist voice. We need to overcome the tendency, you know, the catch, you know, the catch 67, the notion that if we leave the West Bank, there's a problem. If we stay in the left bank, is the problem. That catch created political passivity. Now I think maybe it should we turn that into political pragmatism. Now there's an elephant in the room. Go for it. And that elephant in the room is that it takes two to tango. So even if we 
imagine an enormous success for this new movement of the radical center that you're talking about, you know, what happens on the other side? You know, I mean, how do you, what happens if the Palestinian side doesn't sort of come along with this moderate? David, I'm a, I'm a Zionist. You are too. <laughs> and I think Zionism is understanding that we have to control our own destiny and own our own destiny. Waiting for the ultimate partner on the other side means we're giving the other side control and power over our history. I don't think we should wait for the ultimate partner on the other side. I think we should decide what's good for us, what's important for us, and do it. Now, unilateral steps have a very bad name in Israel because of 2005, the withdrawal from Gaza. But there are unilateral steps that we can do that will not risk our security. That will not. Let me give you one example, okay? The Palestinian autonomy in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, has a problem. Um, it's not continuous. It doesn't have any ter territorial continuity. And um, what would happen, David, if Israel would build a road that connects all the parts of the Palestinian autonomy? And then we give the Palestinians sovereignty over that road. In one move, David, you reduce the amount of occupation dramatically without in parallel reducing the security of Israelis. See, these are actions. We need to think of the actions that will enable us to control Palestinians a lot less without our security being, uh, without us being threatened by them more. You might have touched on something here because there's something very Israeli about taking action, isn't yeah. there? So it's quite possible that what you've just uh, described is part of the, the nerve that you've struck. Yeah. This idea that there is something we can do so without risking security. Exactly. So we think there's like a zero-sum game. And this is a false way of thinking. That the more we control the Palestinians, the more security we have, the less we control them, the less security we have. Well, the opinion of professionals in the Israeli army is that's wrong. There's actually things we can do that will enable us to control them less without us having less security. So if those, there's things we can do, let's just do them, David. And you've run this by some, like the, the high levels. I know you, you're very connected at the highest levels of the IDF, but so, without, without naming names. So I could tell you that within the IDF, there is many small steps that we can do. They have ideas. Now, this is what I figured out, David. But if we take all these small steps and we add them together, that's a big step. The accumulation of small steps is one big step. So like this, this road I told you about, that's one idea. Expanding areas around Palestinian cities is another idea. There's many ideas out there. Let's put them all together and the result won't, won't, the result won't be peace. But it will be that we shrink the amount of control that we have over the Palestinians without shrinking the security of Israelis. You know, this flies in the face of so much of what I've heard over the years and so many activities that's always based on peaceful coexistence. So there's so many organizations that have, you know, the Seeds of Peace and the uh, summer camp that's got Israelis and Palestinians. There's countless number of these initiatives. And what I'm hearing here is that... Uh, you know, there's a, a, a different approach, which is to just do it. Let's just do it. 
You see, we are trapped in a conversation about are you like there's a this big redeeming plan, two state solution, and there is a big conversation: are you for the plan, against the plan, for the plan, against the plan? Now, how, now that's right and left. What is center? Center is not asking if you're for the big plan or against the big plan. It's not about asking a question. It's, about be, it's not about asking what's the answer. It's about becoming the answer. It's about doing small steps that's starting to change reality. Let's start, let's, let's start doing them. Let's start a conversation about the small steps and not the conversation about the big, grand solution. Let's, let, let's, let's start a conversation about what we can do now and not a conversation about, about what can we do if there'll be new Palestinian leadership. Let's not wait. Let's do. I think that's Zionism. Exile is over. We're not waiting for a Messiah. We're asking what, what can we do now? And if we can shrink the amount of occupation without in parallel shrinking the amount of security, why shouldn't we do it tomorrow morning, David? Let me put you on the spot. Go for it. I know you've studied philosophers for years. <laughs> you know, it's your, it's your, it's your world. Uh, can you connect any of this to some of the philosophers and the, the studies? Because there's there, there's something about it that's kind of fresh, and I'm I'm wondering if you can make some kind of a connection to your the stuff that you've studied. Well, first of all, I think Zionism is a philosophy. Mm. The notion that... Um, that you don't wait. That you don't wait. But there's also, you know, I want to surprise you. So Zionism is about owning your history and starting to do something and not waiting. But there's also another philosophy that I think I'm inspired from. And it might surprise you now. Muslim theology. Muslim theology has a different understanding of time than Western people. Western people think that time is like a, is an asset. Like you can own time. You know, you're wasting my time. That assumes that time is something that you could own. Um, can I have a moment of your time? Like it's yours. Muslim says time belongs to God. It's not mine. It's not yours. Now, when you think that time belongs to God, you have much more patience. No one's wasting your time because it's not your time. Western people have a tendency to think that time is ours, therefore history is under our control, and therefore we can construct history. I think this is a, I think we're always confusing space with time in the following sense. We can control space. I could build a bridge. I can't build history. Alex Sharon thought that if we invade Lebanon, we can have a Maronite Christian government in Lebanon. Palestinians will immigrate to Jordan. They'll overthrow the king. We'll have a Palestinian state in Jordan. As a result, we'll have a new Middle East. Donald Rumsfeld thought, thought we could invade Iraq, have a democracy in Iraq. Arab countries around the area would see that democracy, imitate it, and become democratic themselves, would have a new Middle East. Shimon Peres thought in Oslo would have agreement with the Palestinians that would spread to agreement with all the Arab countries, which would turn them into liberal capitalist countries and would have a new Middle East. All these three attempts, the Lebanon war, the war in Iraq, and Oslo were different attempts of human beings to control history. Like history is space, it's like a bridge. And all three backfired, David. All three backfired. We can't control the future. We have to have modesty when it comes to time. And this is, I take this inspiration from Jewish thought and also from Muslim thought. And so let's not try to control the next hundred years. Let's try to think about the next year. That's why I'm for, for, for small steps. I'm for modesty when it comes to the future. I'm not for a new Middle East. I'm for a new road. 
I'm for something we can do now. Well, it's interesting because if you listen to the, uh, the language of the past 15 years, I mean, 15 years ago, they were saying, we don't have time left. You know, time is of the essence. We're running out of time to make a two-state solution. And that clock ticking has been the motif that has carried along mm -hmm. year after year after year. Mm -hmm. And President Obama said that for eight years as nothing was going on, he said, you know, we're running out of time. Because whatever the reason is, maybe the settlement growth and the, the two-state solution is getting more and more distance. So I see what you're saying about the obsession with time. Yeah, maybe we should think of it differently. Like we always don't want our children to inherit our problems. Let's solve it for them. But maybe we should share the burden with them. Maybe we should think of it differently. Like we're not, we're not delaying our problems to the future, but we're sharing the burden with the future. Like, what happens if I could tell you, David, we could, we could come up with a, pro with a program that will gain us 10 years of stability? That you ask, Micha, but what will happen 10 years from now? Well, maybe then we'll figure out another idea. We'll gain 10 more years. Let's share the burden with the future. We, because we don't even know what the future will look like. We don't know what will be right then. So with modesty in front of time, in front of the future, understanding that we don't own time. So let's ask what we can do the next five, 10 years. And if that works, let's figure out 10 years from now, what, we, what, what can we do? It's, it is a paradox happening here. On the one hand, there's something very Israeli about just taking action. On the other hand, there's something not Israeli about not fixing something and not yeah. having a solution is yes. because the Israeli way is time driven and I got to fix it by tomorrow, 12 o'clock kind of thing. So it, there's, there's an interesting paradox and you'd like the first part to sort of begin to, to dominate the artful part where you surrender a little bit. Yeah. You surrender. I could, yeah. I think attempts to control history always backfire. The thought, the hubris, the thought that you, by your actions, can have complete control over time will always, will always, almost always lead to like the, the opposite result. Let's stop controlling time. We can control space. We could build bridges. We could build buildings. We can't build history. You know, we're sort of coming full circle, though, because there is something spiritual about this idea. I know that uh, I love sort of surrendering. Yeah to God on Shabbat, surrendering mm -hmm. at Yom Kippur. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that part of it where I'm not in control mm -hmm. of everything. So This is, in I think, a way, where Zionism has to learn from Judaism. Zionism is us controlling, but it has to be softened with Judaism, knowing that we control, but there's also boundaries to our control. There's something beyond us. And when you look at, I know you and I have had a number of discussions over the years on the influence of religion in, in government, and it's... Again, it's uh, sort of ironic that the religious part of the coalition in the government, you know, Shas and all that, they, they don't bring any of that to the energy mm -hmm. of the conflict. There is, there is no spirituality. There's none of that humility. Mm -hmm. There's none of that. If mm -hmm. anything, they, they're more political than the politicians. That's true. That's true. I think this is the important—I mean, I think um, what religion brings to politics— it creates false certainty. What it should bring to politics is real modesty. Because when it brings to, when you think that your policy, think about it, David, when you think that a policy that you're offering is what God wants, <laughs> then you, you have absolute certainty. And also whoever disagrees with you is disagreeing with God, 
which turns that person from someone that's just wrong to someone that you, how do you say before, that you reject. So bringing God into a political conversation always cripples the conversation. But here's a different way to bring God into the conversation. Saying, these are my views, but they're only my views. Here's how I see the future. I'm probably wrong because I don't own the future. And that's how God that brings false certainty could bring real modesty. And that's what we need. We need God in the conversation, but not the God that tells you that you're right. God that tells you that you have no idea if you're right. You know where I'd love to see one day? We're going to close on this note. I'd love to see a, an amazing playwright do a play <laughs> where the humility enters the picture and the play is about an Israeli and a Palestinian who meet at a cafe and it's like my dinner with Andre and they have a two hour conversation that's all about humility. And, they, they, and there's a place where they meet and they meet that humility because Islam has a humble side. You surrender to God, you surrender right. to a higher force. And it seems to me that that energy yes. needs to enter into the conversation on both sides. And that's where artists come in because an artist can create. I got to tell you, I went to see the play Oslo in New York. I got none of that. There was no artfulness. There was all real politique. And, you know, the hard-nosed, you know, uh, back and forth that created the Oslo, but there was no artfulness, there was no music, there was no humility, there was just the expected. Yes. And it would be great to see a play one day that, that imagines what kind of a conversation would happen if we brought humility to both sides. I think there's a reason why Jews are in the Middle East. Jews are very inspired and influenced by the West. And the West is about ambition and control. And we have a lot to learn from the West. We have a lot to learn from Islam about surrendering, about realizing that there's limits to our control. And Judaism is at its best when it learns from all cultures and that enables it to influence all cultures. And I hope, and, and, and um, I think managing this conflict in a smarter way will also enable us, we have to, in order to, to deal with Islam, we have to also learn from Islam. Right now, Israel is informed by the West, we're very ambitious, but not enough by Islam. We're not enough. We're not modest enough. That's the combination. That, that, that's the play you're looking for. And maybe that play should be Israel itself. Maybe Israel. Maybe in Israel we should learn. We should learn how to do that. Well, on that humble note, I want to remind our listeners that the book comes out in English on August first. In August, yeah, in uh, Yale University Press in August first. Yes. Uh, we're looking forward to. Thank you. Reading the book. Thank you very much, Mika. Thank you, David. Thank you for this.